Baseball, developing people in the great leaders, business diversification, his faith, and his family. Those are the cornerstones which get Trent Clark excited about living life. Trent is the CEO of Leadership and the founder of Courage Coach, LLC. Having spent the majority of his adulthood around the top 1% of producers in both sports and business, Clark is dedicated to helping people reach their peak performance and goals while also attaining their dreams. At Leadershipity, they design, coach, and facilitate measurable training education assessments and mentoring team for personal leadership and team building worldwide clark also spent the better part of 12 years as a division one college athlete and a coach in professional baseball spending time with the detroit tigers the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, and the Cleveland Indians. Clark spent some time this week engaging in conversation with me about effective leadership, his time in baseball, and building effective, productive, and meaningful teams of progress and potential. I'm Kevin McShann. Let's have this conversation. So, Trent, if you're ready, I'll take a moment to welcome you to the program. And I'm super excited to be with you this morning to talk about your, your journey in baseball and business. Great to see you, and thanks for a few minutes. Thank you, Kevin, for having me. Excited to be with you. Absolutely. Now, Trent, I wanted to kick off our conversation by asking you uh, your definition of leadership and what it means to you to build winning teams. Yeah, for me, you know, I, I liked, um, you know, Tom Brady recently just did a uh, program about, you know, uh, his his time as a, as a champion and all that. And I really liked, he had a good definition of leadership that how he saw that. And I thought it was important. Um, you know, for me, leadership starts with caring for others and giving of oneself for the initiative, for the greater good, for the people. It seems that every time when we talk about, um, you know, we lead people, we don't lead organizations, we don't lead products, we lead people. And I think that's what people really have to get back to is that it's about human relationship. And as a man, um, it's so important for us uh, to be givers, 
and to give in that and care for others. So that's really what I see first all is, is key to a leadership. From a team standpoint, I think the key, key element there is having a group of people that are willing to come together and sacrifice for a mission, whatever that is. And, and that falls under probably a guise of values and integrity in that mission of how we're going to complete it. But we are all focused in on how do we do that toward one thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that you're the CEO of uh, Leadershipity and the founder of Courage Coach. So I'm uh, curious if you could tell me all about those endeavor, endeavors and what they mean to you. So Leadershipity is really our, our firm that we train up leaders on. And it has been uh, crucial for us that um, we develop those itties of leadership. And when we talk about those itties, we talk about um, the foundational itties of humility and integrity and spirituality and quality and all these things that we're looking for um, and stability. Uh, but there's a bunch of other itties that we want in our leaders. We want accountability around uh, coachability, adaptability, responsibility, dependability. And then we want um, to be a voice in that with, with clarity. And, um, and ultimately, most organizations are looking for productivity because that's what we're measured on. So uh, on the side of leadershipity, um, itties are what we're all looking for. And quite frankly, you know, Kevin is leaders. We, we, we fall short in some of those itties and, and we all do. And so we want to know where our superpowers are inside that leadership. And then we also want to know where are areas that we may need some help. And it may be assistance from a team that we surround ourselves. If, if I'm not great at, at quality, but you are Kevin, like I got to get Kevin in on my team because I really need someone high level who's really great at quality because sometimes that's not my strength. And so um, that's really important for teams. And when I think about Courage Coach, our name, you know, it, it is uh, courageous leadership is hard to find. Uh, and in today's market and today's world, I'm not seeing a lot of courage in leadership. I see a lot of people kowtow or they won't stand up. I have a lot of respect for people who will draw a line in the sand and have the courage to stand behind it and, and, and fight for that. And even, even if I don't agree with it, I at least respect it. And I'm seeing people that just waver all the time. And in an environment where we need leaders to stand up and, and be an authority, another big itty, um, they're, they're falling short. Yeah. So, uh, what do you think goes into developing a great leader? And what sort of qualities do you think great leaders have? Well, I think the first quality that great leaders have is, is those cornerstones of the pyramid of leadership, which is they have integrity and they have humility. Those are, those are two qualities that I think um, – are going to be very challenging to move forward and develop great teams and great organizations. If at the top of your leadership, you do not have those two things as a foundation. Um, probably the characteristic trait that I find in the best leaders is self-discipline. That is probably the trait that is a separator 
from good leaders to great leaders. I have never a great leader that does not have self-discipline. And it's the one trait that's consistent across all the great leaders I've worked with. And um, it's a separator for, for people that are really good leaders. And, and oftentimes they're like, boy, Kevin, you know, I'd really like to climb that ladder to that next level of greatness and leadership, but they, they are missing that self-discipline. And uh, I have yet to see someone overcome good to great without first acquiring that self-discipline. And I, and I do believe people can learn it. I do, I do think people can learn that skill but it's not an easy trade. Some are more uh, better at it and some have been trained at it from a very young age. And some, I think, have some innate ability that they were built that way and it was a lot easier for it to come to them. And I think some people have worked very hard to get it and they developed it over a long time. Yeah, and Trent, I know that you've spent a large majority of your career surrounded by the top 1% of producers in both business and in sports, and they're dedicated to helping them reach their goals, buddy, and their peak performance. So I'm wondering how, how you go about helping um, sports leaders and business leaders attain their ultimate goal and the messages you give them around peak performance as well. Yeah, so I think that... Um you know, having spent a lot of time around those 1% performers, there's a lot of traits that we find are, are consistent across that board. And so for people who really want to get a goal, I think the first thing they have to do is really get focused on what they really want. And Kevin, what I see with a lot of people is I see folks that um, they are not, they are not, uh, they're not actually, they did not have great clarity around what their goal is. I mean, they'll say one thing, but at the end of the day, um, I, I don't think they're committed to it. They haven't really fully gone in. So sometimes that first dive is to make sure that there is alignment and clarity around where they want to go. Um, I have been known as a dream maker. And, and what I say that is that People come to me and what I really want to know is what are you dreaming about? What do you really, what's, what's the dream for you? And so when, when they get that chance, they get to focus in on, this is, this is what I really wake up. It just sits me up in my bed right in the middle of the night. This is what I really want to accomplish. This is what I really see for myself. And it's not what they have in, on their paper at the office. It's, it's, it's much more than that. And, and they're selling themselves short in their goal. And I think when people get clarity about what they really want, what they really want to attain and, and, and really attract and dream about, I think that's a first really important thing. I think the second thing is, is that um, one percenters take a very holistic approach about how they do it because they realize that, you know, if, if it's going to take you and I 10 things to reach this dream, you know, and, and let's say you and I, we are on a team and we want to win that world championship. You know, it's going to take these 10 things and we, and we define those things. It's not like we can do eight and just not do the other two. You know, it's like playing basketball and saying, you know, we're only going to play offense. We won't be playing any defense. <laughs> like, oh, wait a minute. Like it's a holistic game. We have to do all the parts of the game. Right. And so 
um, we really have lost that holistic approach and we've become enamored with the expert in one area. And what I found is that um, there's a lot of people that can take the expertise in one particular skill or they're really impressive in a couple skills, but then they, are, they totally have never developed the other skills. They, they don't always make great teammates because there's a lack of adaptability. There's a lack of foundational feature that we need some foundation on all 10 of these items and they need to move up together. And when they don't, one falls short. It's like this massive gap and it creates like a crack in the foundation if one's not there. So, you know, what we always say is you can't build a solid house on a, on a cracked foundation. So people trying to get and go to that top level, you need stability. And if there's a crack in the foundation, st stability is going to be a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And building on that point, friends, you know, uh, I'm going to share just a little bit about myself. I was uh, born with what's called um, spastic quadrupedal cerebral palsy. Uh, simply means that I don't have enough oxygen in my legs to walk normally. And outside of hosting this podcast, I do some motivational spirit work around diversity, equity, and inclusion when it comes to uh, people with disabilities. So on. what are your thoughts on the importance of the full inclusion of individuals with disabilities in business and societal life in general? Yeah, I think, I think that we could do, first of all, as a society, I think we could be doing a lot better. Um, that's first and foremost. The second thing that, that I think it starts with is, is at a young age of acceptance, teaching, and training, empowering tools to our educators, our parents, the people that are diving into that. I believe that <clears throat> most people consider that they have some level of disability, almost every certain person, like, and I don't think that God made any mistakes. I think God made us exactly how he intended. I don't think there's error. I would never question it. And so I could sit there and say, you know, hey, if I was born and I have dyslexia, I have a disability, but I have to overcome that. You know, that's why. Now, what I do know is if I took a um, inventory of all the strengths of Kevin, I would have tons. I would have tons of great things that, that you've been born with, empowered with, that you've developed and trained. And part of those strengths and superpowers of Kevin have been strengthened up in, in, in connection with the very disability. I got stronger at this because I was unable to do something else as well as I would have liked. And it's kind of like um, when, when someone can't see, you know, all of a sudden my sense of hearing and smell takes on this whole level of sense that and perception that helps me navigate this world in a different way because I will be doing it with only four senses, right? And so we have to lean into that strength of people and how they can, every person is, is been gifted strengths from God. And we have to lean into the power and the strength of the God-given powers and strengths that were in, uh, adorned to people. And the challenge with people is I think they judge this outer casing of what that's supposed to look like. And I don't, I don't think we're qualified as people. I think what we have to do is get a lot stronger 
in developing these things and, and looking for opportunity of where do I create and use these superpowers that I've been adorned by a higher power in my life. And I've developed over many of these years to use these like you have, Kevin, in a contribution to this world. I'm starting a podcast. I'm taking my show on the road. I'm going to give information to people in this world and educate them. And you're out there doing those things. And, and those have nothing to do with your disability. These are strengths that you've developed and been gifted with, and you're taking them to a next level and making great contribution. And that's every one of us has that choice. And the, the biggest concern I have for people in the world, disability or no disability, is that they don't take their strengths and use them at all. And it's to me, it's like um, shunning the higher power that, hey, I've given you these things to go make this contribution in the world and you're ignoring it or even worse, withholding it from all those people that could be benefiting. Yeah, thanks for uh, sharing that and thanks for the compliment. It's most appreciated. And you made a, you made a, a point earlier that, that piqued my interest about the morality or the ethical, the ethical part of leadership and how we're losing that so how do you think we get back to a more, a more uh, I guess, moral sense of leadership and leading with integrity? Yeah, I think that what, what's happened is in our society is we've been very focused on physical and mental development. And physical came first, right? We're going to all get physically stronger. We're going to get healthier. We're going to get this. And then people realize like, whoa, we're really missing on this mental component, you know, of development and performance. And so we, we put that into our universities, training and development. And we really realized that we've come a long way in mental development um, for, for all levels. And that's great. Where I think we've gone backwards is we've lost our moral development. You know, we were uh, 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 founded as a, as a, country of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that was founded on a, a, a center around faith and religion and higher power. And there was a moral conditioning that came with church and the Bible and all the things that we read in any different religion, because we all have that. And every religion has a moral fabric to it. And, um, you know, that's where as, as religions have fallen short, as we've messed it up and sin is alive in the world. And I really get that. Um, we've, we've really lost and just moved away from moral conditioning. I don't hear words like noble in the schools. I don't hear words like honor. I don't hear words like anymore that were, that were very ingrained in our education system 50 years ago. And, they're, and it's almost like those words have been eradicated and, and, and have left the entire syllabus. And I don't understand. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. Hopefully we can get back to finding our moral center uh, trend for sure. For sure. But I know also that you're a lifelong entrepreneur and you've started uh, up to 12 companies. But I also know 
you have a passion for baseball, and you were a college athlete in Division One, and you also spent some time coaching for three teams in the majors. So tell me, what do you remember most about your time in baseball and your memories in that part of your life? You know, my time in baseball was great. Uh, you know, it was, it's um, looking back on, I have a much greater reflection of that time than when I was there, right? Like uh, when I was there, I was, I was mired in hyper learning, right? And if you recall, like, you know, being at university or in your studies, it's hard. And, and when you're mired in it, you've got your head down, you're focused on learning this next level. You know, what can I do to get to that next level? And it's so challenging. Um, looking back on it, what I probably my biggest takeaway from, you know, all the teams and relationships uh, and all the things I've been involved in is really the relationships. The championships were great. Um, and they were, they were definitely uh, memorable and all those things. But the, the, the contribution and the team effort coming together was probably the greatest value and the relationships built in that. The only thing I would even equate that to, and it's, and it's, a, and it's a minor equation, is, is like being in a company of soldiers on the front lines of a war where it's not a life or death situation in sports, which takes that a whole other level down. But there is an absolute fraternity of relationship that happens when, when you go to something so important on one single mission, and then you accomplish that mission together. And it's one of the huge things I see about diversity and inclusion um, is that when you go on to a team in professional sports, you're often represented by players of all ethnic, all ethnic, I'm not saying it, ethnicities and countries, cultures across the board. You have an organization with 220 players. There'll be 15 countries represented. There'll be, you know, 200 cultures. And even in the United States, we have very different cultures in Southern Texas from North Wyoming to Northern Michigan to Eastern, Eastern suburbs and, and, and Eastern coast to the West coast to Florida. We have very different cultural values that go around about where we live and grew up in. And so this coming together in this melting pot of diversity, equity, and inclusion all comes together and says, hey, this is our greater mission. And we do this together, regardless of your culture, regardless of what you were raised in. If you had money, if you didn't have money, if you were raised this way in a single parent or two parent, like it, it, just, it just doesn't matter what the color of your skin is or anything else. It's about being a contributor to a team and adding value in teammate relationship, friendship, and contributing your skill sets to that mission. And when you do that, it, it's something, Kevin, that's so powerful to be a part of. You know, I, I wish every organization, and it's really what we're going for in leadership. I would hope that every organization can experience winning together in that environment and, and bring everybody along for it. And when someone gets there, you know, we, we're in the middle of the great resignation, right? Everybody's leaving their job. And when people figure that out, they want to stay and be a part of it. They don't want to go anywhere else. They want to be like, man, I want to be on Kevin's team. Like he's created an environment 
that I can't help but want to be a part of. And why would I want to go anywhere else? Yeah. And Drag, I'll tell you that I live in Windsor, right across the river from Detroit, buddy. And I know you spent some time with the Tigers. So tell me, what do you remember most about your time in Detroit? So, yeah, being a Windsor guy, I love that. That's awesome, Kevin. I, um, I love Detroit. Um, I didn't live there very long, but um, my, my great time, there's two probably great memories for me in Detroit, which was one is I was 14 years old when the Tigers won the World Series in 1984. So, man, they called them the bless you boys, you know, and, and they were this great team, Kirk Gibson, Alan Trammell, Lou Whitaker. And then fast forward to 1993, you know, almost 10 seasons later, I signed with Detroit and uh, you know, all these players, Larry Herndon was our first base coach and, uh, Kirk Gibson was back and Alan Trammell, Lou Whitaker was still there. And Lance Paris was back. So all this team that was a part of the world championship was back. And it was like re reliving my childhood days with the actual players that now I was coaching to make sure that they could continue on in their career. And that was a huge moment for me. And, the other big moment was as a kid growing up in Michigan, and you probably heard this in Windsor, Windsor was we all listened to Ernie Harwell as a, as a radio voice, right? Of the voice of, course, of the Tigers. Yeah. yeah. And my dad and I had probably great moments. My dad's passed now. And, you know, in the summertime, I would uh, bounce into my dad's den and he would have the ball game on and we'd sit and listen to the last three innings and Ernie Harwell on the call. And when I signed, I went to spring training in 1994 and I was in Tiger Town and I was there a few days before everybody was showing up and I sat down to breakfast in Tiger Town and uh, I hear this voice behind me says, hey, Vela, you think I could have breakfast with you? And I was like, I know that voice. Like, <laughs> like, like I'd look over my shoulder and there's Ernie Harwell. And I'm like, uh, yeah, sure, Mr. Harwell. You know, and so. He sat down and I had breakfast with Ernie and, um, you know, this was the day, you know, 1994, there weren't cell phones everywhere. Right. So I went through my whole day and it was probably six or seven o'clock at night. And I finally got to the phone and I called my dad and I was like, dad, you'll never guess who I had breakfast with. Ernie Harwell sat with me this morning at breakfast. And it was just a really cool moment for me. Um, just being a, a Michigan kid and being part of the Tigers organization, even for a brief time because of the strike. Um, it was, it was really great and, and got to know Windsor a little bit while I lived there too. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. It's pretty cool for the Tigers to have the international uh, component to their fan base, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to go quickly back to building the team dynamic. And I highly think uh, corporate executives or uh, business leaders can do that effectively when they're looking to create unity in, the, in their uh, team building process. How do you think they can accomplish that? Yeah, I think unity is, is such a tough itty, right? That is one of the, the hardest ones. It's, a, it's near the top of the pyramid, and it is a great separator, right? It is a great separator from really good teams to great teams. And 
unity to me usually focuses on our mission. What are we going for uh, as an organization? And when there's clarity around that mission, we can get our team along with it. Now, to me, where unity really hits home is that we bring all the diverse backgrounds, relationships of the entire team, and we get everybody moving towards that. Because here's the value of, of that to me. When you get that lens of all these different people from different backgrounds, different experiences, different education levels, and, and you bring that in and you get all those ideas, it's hyper learning. It's why are the pro players so great, Kevin? You know, one of the reasons that it's so important that baseball wants players to come out of high school but instead of go to college is that if I bring you on our team at 18, I'm going to get to work out with you for eight hours a day, six or seven days a week. And I'm going to have the best coaches in the world around you who've not only know how to coach, but they've also been there and done it. They've had a bunch of shared experiences and a bunch of individual experiences from top coaches. And they're all bringing those experiences to help you. And if you go to college, you're going to be 30 players or more and three coaches. So you're 10 to one ratio. And it's much better at the professional level. You know, it's usually like five to seven to one ratio. And you have all these people around you and all these support structures to make and help Kevin be the best player he can be. So the factor is, is at a university, I only spent probably two or three hours a day max, maybe five or six days a week in my baseball development. And then I had to develop my skills as a student and do my classwork and do my coursework as an athlete and a player. If you had that eight hours, the next three, the next three years, you're going to get five hours more a day and maybe close to 20, 25 a week times that by 50. Right. And all of a sudden it's a huge number of advantage that you have over me. And so when you get unity going, and you understand how all of us play into that system and we can hyper learn together, the organization becomes a great separator and others will not be able to compete with you. Yeah, absolutely. And Trav, as you know, uh, baseball is back, but I ended the strike and time to have a full season. So I'm uh, wondering your thoughts on the changes that have made in baseball and how it's changed since you uh, left coaching about it. Yeah, I, you know, quite, I'll tell you, Kevin, I haven't kept up with all the changes to baseball. I see some of the rule changes, the extra innings. I've seen them play with a number of the timers um, for pitches and getting back in the batter's box. They're doing some things to speed up the game, I think is natural. Um, one of the things that I think could have been created without all the rules is, is, you know, developing that behavior inside the organizations. Now, maybe all the organizations aren't going to be good at it, but creating a tempo around good sport is important. And I'm surprised that internally organizations didn't do it sooner, but um, it has changed. And I think that the changes that they're making are better for the fan 
but I don't know if it's better for the game overall. Like, I mean, time is going to have to play that out. One of the things that's not a strength of baseball is that uh, adaptability is not high, <laughs> right? And tradition is super strong. And so um, there's that adage of it ain't, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Now, in the last 20 years, technology has forced change, whether people like it or not, in all, in all sorts of industries. So baseball is not on an island in this, but technology has changed some things. And, and if, and if um, organizations don't lean into that and professional sports don't lean into that, they will get passed over. I mean, te technology is just part of a fabric of our lives and it's ingrained now. And so how do we use it and still keep um, our values uh, uh, attached and in place? I think that's going to be the biggest challenge with baseball is the integrity of the game not being lost on giving everyone what they want. Yeah, and just one more baseball question for you. In terms of making uh, baseball players more marketable at the professional level, how do you think uh, baseball can do a better, uh, an effective job of that? Because I know that you have a lot of business and entrepreneurial experience outside of your uh, professional sports uh, time. So I'm curious. Yeah, I think um, it's a really tough thing because marketing takes time, right? And, and it takes commitment and it takes uh, a lot of effort and it's already a really full schedule. There's a lot to do for a pro athlete. I know a lot of people think baseball means you show up at five o'clock and play a game at seven, like it's little league, but you know, most athletes are at the field at 12 or one o'clock and at the latest three o'clock. I mean, at the very latest you are at the ballpark at three o'clock for a seven thirty game. So, I mean, people spend a lot of time and they're not going to leave till 11, 1130 at night. The game is going to end at 10, 1030. They have to do interviews. They, they may have a coach meeting. They have to shower and clean up. They may have to work out. There's a lot of things going on. It's not, I, I don't recall leaving ballparks before midnight in my role as a strength and conditioning guy, because there were training after things we had to get done. Uh, administrative work. And by the time it was all done and the last player left, um, I could leave then. And that was well after midnight. And, and we like that. We like committed players that stay and do the work, but that means that affects the next day. So asking a player to now get up and do an 8am, you know, uh, event at a school is really hard to do. Right. And so how they're going to balance that <clears throat> is, is a little challenging. And I don't think anybody wants to give up the revenues of the 162 games. I don't think they're willing to back down to 125 in order to give those off days and get involved more in the community. Um, but I always think that like organizations can do a little bit better um, in, in community engagement with the teams. And, and that's hard to do. It's a real challenge for the organization. So it's not as if they're not doing a good job. They're doing their best, but given the schedule, it is a real challenge on both sides of these equations to make sure fans are engaged and make sure players have time. The, the biggest thing that I think people really get from a marketability with players is getting to know them, like getting to know them on that individual level a little bit 
and showing some, some unique personal vulnerability. So, you know, some of the more individual mic events and around practice and being open to three thirty four o'clock when you're doing the training and having some people alongside you and opening that up. I think things there's, there's a possibility of more marketability there, but it's just not easy. Yeah, absolutely. And Fred, based on your uh, business and sports experience, I'm also uh, wanting you to dive into your mentors just a little bit because you've got a wealth of experience in a number of different areas. So I'm wondering, is there any particular mentors that sort of spearheaded you, you to where you are today? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I have my actually entrepreneur mentorship hat on today. Um, and I think, I think mentoring is one of those crucial things, Kevin. I mean, and I also think it's available to everyone. I mean, I think everyone has a chance to have a mentor and I, I like to challenge people all the time. If you do not have a mentor in your life that you make a hot list of the five most impactful people that you think that you know of, they may not know you, but you know of that you think could have impact as a mentor that you see as someone who's successful, who's done something that you've want, done or you want to do that um, has come before you. Um, and and my, my charge to people is put that five on a list, one through five, and then start researching, be curious and find out how you can get a hold of those five people and call them one through five <laughs> you know, like, and say, hey, listen, you know, Kevin, it would be such an honor if you were a mentor to me. I know you own your own podcast and I'd like to own a podcast one day and run that. And you've done that successfully. And could you maybe meet with me once a month? And I could maybe offer you something in return. Like, hey, I'll, I'll mow your lawn. I'll, I'll you know, offer you coaching services. You know, whatever I have to offer, I may offer something in return in a barter but what I'm just asking for is some of your time to help me get educated and accountability partner on how I could do what you've done before in your life. What I have found about the top 1%, Kevin, is that people rarely ask them for their advice. They have all this data and information, and they really want to share it with somebody else. And the reality is, is that they don't get that opportunity very often. And they may say no, but the easier you can make it for them, the better. Like I will come to you. We'll meet once a month. If you could do spare 60 to 90 minutes, I'll buy you breakfast. Like what they're going to eat, right? So what can you do to make it so easy that they would be like, hey, listen, I would be happy to help you. When, when they hear your commitment and desire, for the information and for the partnership, they're going to understand that they're a driven person and have their own desires. They're going to hear that in you and going, wow, this person's willing to mow my lawn and buy me breakfast. And I feel that desire. Listen, you don't need to mow my lawn, kid, but you know, like I, if you buy me breakfast, we'll sit down at my diner here right by my office because it's going to be convenient and I'll meet you at Shirley's every third Thursday at 8 a.m. You know, and like, and you're off and running. Now you're off and running on having a relationship to help develop your skills, to take you to the next level 
to get you on your way to your dream about what you're dreaming about. And here's someone who's done it. They've already lived your dream and they know the way and they'll help direct your steps. Yeah, I always say, Trent, that life is a constant game of networking, isn't it? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And my final question for you today has to do with what you're most grateful for in life and how you want your personal and professional legacy to be defined. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things I'm grateful and blessed for in my life. I mean, first of all is my health. Um, I think that's really, you know, just, and this isn't in any particular order, but um, my health is really important, um, you know, for anyone who's lost their health at, at any time in their life. And it's been different uh, and changed. Um, you really appreciate when you're able to do the things you can do. And when you lose that, um, you know, that is a, it, it is a big factor. Um, two is I'm blessed that we live in a country where we can, you know, openly practice our faith and whatever your faith is. And I love that. I think that's really important. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for a country that I live in because I have a pretty thick passport and I see what other things are offered in other countries. And we hear it on the news, but I've seen it firsthand. And we have a lot of great things going for us here in this country. And yeah, there's some things that are in jeopardy and in question right now. And, and it probably always is, by the way. And and we have to defend our, our liberties. And, and that's not a, a every once in a while thing. That's an all the time thing. That's a responsibility of us as citizens. Um, and I think that uh, I'm honored and grateful that we get that opportunity here where other people don't, quite frankly. Uh, really grateful for my family, my wife and my five children. I've been married 20 years and we have five kids together. So and then lastly, is the, the relationships in my life, Kevin, like our relationship, being friends now, getting on a chance to be on your show and, you know, meeting somebody new and having a relationship with a person. And I have many. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm truly blessed in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And follow Dred, just uh, quickly tell me if people want to get connected with you, buddy, what's the best way they can do that? Yeah, they can find me everywhere on social media as Trent M. Clark or at Leadershipity. Uh, we are on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn is probably our biggest. And uh, of course, we have the Winners Find a Way show that's uh, every Fridays at 12.30 p.m. Eastern and 9.30 a.m. Pacific on YouTube, uh, our Leadership YouTube channel, LinkedIn Live and Facebook Live. And, um, and you know, we have our podcast, uh, Winners Find a Way. So please uh, take a listen, listen in. We'd love to have you and uh, learn more. And we're all about education and helping others. And uh, we'd love to have you listen and share it and then like us. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Trent, I have to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed our time together, reflecting on your time and career in both business and in baseball. Your work in the space and time on my behalf are most appreciated. And I want to thank you for being here this morning, buddy. Kevin, it is awesome to get a chance to speak with a Windsor man and a Tigers fan. All right.